I would like to thank my bride for reading our text for us this morning. That was no small undertaking. Maybe the only time that you ever hear the entire third chapter of Nehemiah read as the text for a sermon. And the question that you may have this morning is, what does Nehemiah chapter 3 say to us today? Well, there's a lot of things that it says. And as I approached the text and studied it, I concluded very early that we're only going to get to just look at the surface this morning in about 40 minutes or so. There's a lot of rich, rich information here. But the one overriding thing that comes across that I don't want you to miss, if you don't get anything else than this right here, get this, is that Nehemiah chapter 3 shows us this clearly from the inspired Word of God. That no deed done by one of God's people for God's glory, no matter how small, goes unnoticed by the Lord our God. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Well, the text has already been read. Let me make this observation. Ezra and Nehemiah go together, as Trey has told us previously. And the theme of these two books is this. It's the restoration of divine worship and the restoration of God's people. And those two things... That restoration of divine worship and the restoration of God's people, those two things go hand in hand. You see, the revival of true worship produces revival in the heart of God's people. Now, as we look specifically at chapter 3 today, in its very broadest context, this chapter is about how God relates to His people and how His people, when in right relationship with Him, when in right relationship with Him, how they relate to God. This is about the restoration of the true and spiritual worship of the true and living God. And it's about the spiritual revival of the hearts of His people. God had sovereignly moved and opened the door for the descendants of Abraham to return to Jerusalem from Babylon. And only a very small handful of them did. A very small percentage of the physical descendants of Abraham chose to return home to Jerusalem. And they did it in three waves. Three waves of them came. God had sent Zerubbabel to oversee the rebuilding the temple of God, of God earlier. The temple of God now, you'll recall, is a place of divine worship and sacrifice. The temple represents the whole and entire work of salvation. It is truly a picture of the salvation of God's elect by God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Everything about the temple points toward the Lord Jesus. His sacrifice, His intercession, His substitutionary death, His satisfaction of the wrath of God against us, the salvation of His elect by the grace of God. There were some that returned with Zerubbabel. The second wave was led by Ezra. The Lord God sent Ezra to preach and to teach the Word of God. A man that was uniquely qualified in that day to know the law, to teach the law, and to preach the law. And he did this, God sent him, in order that the Spirit of God might use the Word of God. That was many years ago, in a different time, in a different place, and across a great big ocean. But there's some things that never changes. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to affect the people of God. God used 
the Spirit of God and the Word of God to lead the people of God to true and genuine repentance and to revive the true and spiritual worship of the God of Israel. And then in the third wave, the Lord God sent Nehemiah to oversee the rebuilding of the walls of the city of God. The walls protected the people of God to some degree, but God really protected the people of God, didn't He? The walls of the city protected the people of God, and it made them distinct from the world around them. These walls represented the security of God's elect in Jesus Christ. And that which separates the people of God from all the other people of the world. Come out from among them and be ye separate. Be holy, for I am holy, the Lord God says. These walls were primarily symbolic. They did serve a security purpose. But where they were situated and located, they could have been easily overrun. It was God who protected them, and those walls are indicative of that fact. What is it that separates us this morning Beloved, from the rest of the world around us, what is it, my brother and sister in Christ, that separate us from a lost and dying world out there that hates God, they hate His Word, and they hate His people? It is the free and sovereign grace of God that is distinctive about us. What is it that makes you to differ? The Apostle Paul asked, It is God. We have nothing whereof to boast except the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The grace of God in Jesus Christ in His electing, in His redeeming, in His calling, in His regenerating us, and in His preserving grace unto us till the end. The temple was restored. Zerubbabel started that and it ended in Ezra's day. The Lord God had appointed a man in Ezra and sent him to read and preach and teach the Word of God to the people of God. And the Spirit used the Word of God to cleanse and revive the hearts of God's people. The people of God communed with God and worshipped Him in spirit and in truth. As David said in Psalm 51, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The sermon today only has two points. The first point is this, what Nehemiah 3 tells us about the Lord our God. And the second point is what Nehemiah 3 tells us about the people of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you now, acknowledging that you are indeed our God. Not just the God, but you are our God. Not by our choice, but by your choice. And Father, we acknowledge that you are our sovereign God, and you have a right to use us in any way that you see fit. Father, for your glory, you may choose to prosper us. For your glory, you may choose to afflict us. Father, you have made us as the potter has made the vessel, and we belong to you. You are the sovereign Lord God over all. Lord, we thank You that in Your providence You have caused the chronicler to record these words for us and You have preserved them. Father, as we look at this long list of names of Your people who served You with joy and gladness in difficult circumstances, 
I pray, Father, that your spirit would be present among us and that he would do what we preachers only wish that we could do. And that is to take the word of God and apply it to our hearts, Father, the hearts of the people that are in this room that belong to the Lord Jesus. Father, would you use this text to encourage us, to challenge us, to motivate us, to lead our lives selflessly and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you in his holy name. Amen. What does Nehemiah 3 tell us? about the Lord our God. It tells us a lot about God. First, it tells us that the Lord our God is faithful. He is faithful. Were He not faithful, these people would not be here and there would be no Nehemiah chapter 3. There would have been no Nehemiah. There would have been no Ezra. There would have been no Zerubbabel. The Lord God called Abraham out from the darkness of his pagan son worship and He told him, He said, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And then later the Lord God would reaffirm that to him. And he told Abraham, he said, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The Lord God is faithful. He kept that promise to Abraham. He kept it in salvation. He kept it in correction. And He kept it in judgment. And our faithful God keeps His promises to us today. Get this, beloved. When God says it, He means it. And when God says it, He has the ability to follow through. I will make you a promise and I will do my best to keep it, but I am not almighty. I will not purposefully lie to you. If I give you my word, I take it as my bond. But I do not have an unlimited reservoir of strength and resources to make it come to pass. God does. When God makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. God cannot lie. God does not lie. And God never falls short. Whatever the promise is that's in this book to you, my brother and sister, you can claim it, you can pray it back to God, and you can expect Him to act upon it. That's good news. Our God is faithful and He keeps His promises. He kept His promise in salvation to Abraham. Abraham and his wife were well beyond childbearing years. You know the story. And through a rather interesting conception, they brought forth Isaac, and Isaac brought forth Jacob, and Jacob was the progenitor of the twelve tribes of Israel, and and they were so uh, holy that they sold their brother Joseph into slavery to a roaming band of Midianites that wound up selling him into slavery down in Egypt. And in accordance with God's providence, where did he wind up? Just the number two man in the country, that's all. And then God sent a famine on the tribes of Israel. And where did they go to be fed? They went to Egypt. Who did they run into when they got there and they needed food? Their brother Joseph. He showed them mercy and he told his brothers, who were very scared that he was going to have them put to death. He said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's the sovereignty of God at work in salvation and correction and judgment. They thrived in Egypt. They wound up being enslaved there for 400 years and then God raised up Moses and He led them in an exodus out of Egypt and He led them down to the promised land and out of all those millions that came out, there were very few that made it. 
Most of them perished in the desert because of unbelief. But God took them into Canaan land and He told them, these are the things I want you to do. And He, he told them that if you'll do these things, I'll bless you. And if you don't, I will chastise you. And they didn't. They thrived for a while, but they joined themselves to people that did not worship their God. Consequently, they did not worship their God in a manner that was acceptable to Him. And He sent the Babylonians. They took them into captivity. God chastised them. God corrected them. Then God sent the Persians or the Assyrians to do His will there. That's how we find Nehemiah chapter 3, is that God is faithful and He keeps His promises. Not only that, but God winnows and He separates those that profess to be His people. Do you understand that not everyone that professes to be a child of God truly is? God winnows and He separates those that profess to be His people through hardships, difficulties, and troubles. And then for those that are His people, our God refines and He purifies us through trials and afflictions, oppressions, persecutions, and suffering. Wherever you may be in your life this morning, beloved, if you're experiencing extreme trials and afflictions, persecutions and suffering, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have unconfessed sin before the Lord God Almighty in His sovereignty and His providence. He uses those things in the lives of His people to refine us and to form us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to Him in prayer and and ask God's Spirit to search your heart. And if there's no unconfessed, unconfessed sin that's left, then humble yourself before the Lord God Almighty and kiss the rod as He makes you more like His Son, Jesus Christ. Easy to say, hard to do. In the midst of all that, our God is worthy. He is worthy to be worshiped. And He demands worship. Our God demands to be worshipped and praised and sacrificed unto. And beyond His demand to be worshipped and sacrificed and praised, the Lord God to be sacrificed to and to be praised, the Lord God only accepts. He only accepts worship and praise and sacrifice from His own people, from no others. And the worship and the praise and the sacrifice of His people is acceptable, acceptable to Him only when it's done in strict accordance with His instructions. I want you to understand, there's never been a time that men could approach God and worship Him in the way that they saw fit. We do not dictate to God how we will worship Him. God dictates to us how He will be worshipped. He demands to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Lord God had caused the temple to be rebuilt, the Word of God to be read and preached, and the hearts of His people to be revived. He was committed to commune with His people and to be worshipped by them. No more so in that day than in ours. Beloved, the Lord our God is committed to commune with us and to be worshipped by us. The second point is this. What Nehemiah chapter 3 tells us about the people of God. It tells us that not everyone who professes to be of God truly is. 
Very few descendants of Abraham had gone back to Jerusalem. These people that we're going to read about, or that we're going to speak about, that we have read about, we're going to speak about in a moment, they're a very small minority of the physical offspring of Abraham. The Lord God had chosen these people, the Lord God had chosen these people to accomplish His purpose. The presence of God, the reading and the preaching of His Word was used by God to spiritually revive His people to worship Him as they ought. These folks understood that the walls of the city would be used by God to symbolically separate them from the idolatrous people around them, to unify them with one another, and distinguish them from this God-dishonoring world. Listen to that. God was using these walls to symbolically separate them from the idolatry around them, to unify them with one another, and to distinguish them from the God-dishonoring world. Can anybody miss that that's a picture of the reality in our day of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? It is in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in our day that we are separated from the world, that we are unified in Christ, and that we are distinguished from the God-dishonoring world in which we live. Now they understood the spiritual significance of what they were about to undertake. Do we? We are about to undertake a work for Almighty God. We're about to load this up, put it on a U-Haul, and drive it to Saline County. These folks understood what they were about to undertake was a work that could only be accomplished and could only be successful if the Lord their God was in it. They understood the spiritual significance of it. It was not so much about their safety and their security as it was for the glory of God. In other words, this is what they understood. They understood that the life and the health and the children and the talent and the skills and the money and the homes and all the other blessings that God had blessed them with was not all about them. It was about the glory of God. And it was to be all used for the glory of God. Every blessing that they had, every blessing that we had, every experience that they had lived, every experience that we have lived, every moment of grace that God has given us, grace upon grace upon grace, is about the glory of God. That's why we're here. To live our lives long or short, for the glory of God. Oh, may God create in us the attitude of the psalmist that penned the first verse of Psalm 115 where he said, Not unto us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. May that characterize my heart and my mind and your heart in your mind. So, what does that attitude and understanding in the lives of the people of God in Nehemiah chapter 3 look like? The spiritually revived people of God worshipped Him by prioritizing His glory above their comfort. 
They worship God prioritizing His glory above their comfort. And they toil together. They toil together for the task that God had assigned to their generation for the glory of God. When we read what amounts to ancient history here, sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the context. This is one generation, two at most, of Israelites that had the capability to get up and go down here and do these things each and every day. God had taken that generation of His people and He had given them and assigned them a task to accomplish for His glory. And as we read through Nehemiah chapter 3, what we see is, is that they did it without complaining. Now these people, they came from all classes and situations of life and from all the area around Jerusalem, people from all backgrounds, working side by side. The Lord Jesus Christ has torn down the wall of petition. Look at the church today, this many thousands of years later. What, what is true in that day is true in our day, and that is, is that the people of God come from a lot of various and different and sundry backgrounds. Now, all these people in Nehemiah chapter 3, they were all racially distinct. They were all related to one another. I get that. But the point here is, is that they came from different classes in society and different parts of the world. It's a picture. It's a picture of the reality of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today. We've got people in each one of the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ that come from various backgrounds. We can throw in various races now. All kinds of gifts, all kinds of skills, all different kinds of social strata. These people, they came from all of those classes and situations of life, all those backgrounds, and they worked side by side. As the text was read through this morning, you noticed that all these people are involved. There were priests and high priests. There were Levites. There were temple servants. There were goldsmiths and perfumers. There were rulers of the city of Jerusalem. There were government officials. There were men and women. There were parents and children. There were gatekeepers and there were carpenters. And very likely there was many other folks as well. They all worked together side by side. Out of all that we read about, there were only a few people from the Tekoites that considered themselves too noble. They considered themselves too noble to stoop and serve their God. God deliver us from being too noble, too wealthy, too educated, too busy, too burdened to serve our God. What we see here are brothers and sisters working together as one to do the work to which they have been called by their God. To build the city of God for the glory of God. They were committed to build the city of God for the glory of God, and they would not allow anyone or anything to turn them aside from that which their sovereign God had sent them to do. Four times... Four times the ungodly foreign leaders that opposed them, Samballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, sent word for Nehemiah to come down and meet them. They sent a delegation. They said, Nehemiah, we've got to talk to you. Come talk to us. He knew what they wanted. They were up to no good. Four times Nehemiah gave them the same reply. We read it in chapter 6 of Nehemiah, verses 3 and 4. He said, And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. 
Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? He said they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. Nehemiah understood that they were undertaking a great work for Almighty God, and everything else had to take a back seat. May God impress that upon our hearts and upon our minds. Now look at these folks that that we read about in chapter 3. There is no record, there is no record at all of any division, or any discord, or any argument, or any animosity, or any strife among them as they built this wall. There was unity among the people of God as they labored for the glory of God. Notice, they left their businesses, and they left their ability to earn a wage for 52 days to build this wall. It's amazing, on the one hand, that they were able to build the wall in 52 days. That is literally amazing. What is just amazing to me is, is that these people left their businesses and they left their ability to earn a wage for 52 days to do the work of God. How did they eat? I don't know. But God fed them, didn't He? They sacrificed for God. They were unified and they sacrificed for God. Notice, no one complained about Nehemiah and longed for Ezra. Ezra had by and large, he was still around, but he had by and large served his purpose. It was Nehemiah that God had brought now to the forefront to build this wall. And we don't hear people complaining, oh, if Ezra was leading this operation, I'd be in it. I don't care much for Nehemiah. Nehemiah kind of, he kind of rubs me the wrong way. I'm an Ezra man myself. We don't get that. The people of God didn't pit the servants of God against one another. These people did not attempt to evade the duty that God had called them to. They embraced it with joy. Notice, they did not plead with their brothers and sisters that the inconvenience to their professions and their businesses ought to excuse them from doing the work of God. They buckled their chin strap and they did the work of God. Notice, they did not murmur to one another about the difficulties that they and their families would experience by doing the work of God. They didn't sin against God. You know, murmuring's a sin. They didn't murmur about that. There's no record of anyone complaining about the labor and the sweat and the exhaustion and the blisters and the splinters and the pulled muscles and the smashed fingers. They served God with joy. None of them protested that this work was too hard for them in this season of their life. They understood, they understood that it was not all about them and their convenience, that it was about the glory of God. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we are here for the glory of God, not primarily for our good, certainly not for our convenience. We are here, we exist for the glory of God. They were committed to doing this, to the glory of God, so much so that they would not Except the help of the ungodly. Trey told us last week at the end of 
chapter 2 that uh, Nehemiah told the Horonites and the Ammonites and the Arabs that they had no portion of claim in the city of God. And he did. Essentially what Nehemiah told them was this, that the vile, filthy, and wicked hands that they had would not be allowed to contribute one trowel of mortar or one nail to the venture that God was having them undertake. (laughs) That only the hands of vile, filthy, wicked sinners saved and made clean by the free and sovereign grace of God would be allowed to build the walls of the city of God. Amen. You see, they were worshiping the Lord their God with their hearts and with their minds and their souls and with their backs and with their hands and with their sweat. And they did it while being reviled and being mocked. They did it while being ridiculed and being scorned. They did it while being exposed and vulnerable. They did it while being threatened and working at risk, essentially working with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other, always under the constant threat of attack from their ungodly foes. They were serving the Lord their God with what they had, where they were, for His glory. Now friends, let me postulate this to you. We can only serve the Lord God where we are. I can't serve Him where I'm not. I can't come back from where I hadn't been. I can only serve God where I am, and I can only serve Him with what He has given me. That's what these people were committed to do, and that's what they did. And they did it for the glory of God. They served the Lord their God where they were with what they had for His glory. And by the grace of God, by the grace of God, the people of God were used by God to accomplish the purpose of God. And if we do anything in this world for the glory of God, it will be by His grace. It will be accomplished by His people. And we will be used as God's tools in our venture to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ, our Lord. To conclude, the rock walls and the wooden gates of Jerusalem in Nehemiah 3, they were real. There were real rocks, there was real wood, there was real sweat, there was real blood. But it's not the final reality. The rocks and the mortar and the wood point us to the reality of the new Jerusalem, the city of God that we read about in Revelation chapter 21. John the Revelator said that one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues came to him and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. Now listen, in verse 12 he said, It had a great high wall and twelve gates. And at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the name of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel inscribed. And on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates... And on the wall of the city, there were twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Friends, what we're seeing here in this vision given to 
John the Revelator is this. We're seeing that God is keeping his promise to dwell and commune with his people. What we're seeing is the reality of all of the people that God has called out of this world unto himself are going to spend an eternity in the very presence of Almighty God. In verses 20 through to 26, John tells us, he said, I saw no temple in the city. Hmm. Case of the missing temple. Where's the temple? He said, the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The temple in Jerusalem only represents our Lord Jesus Christ. When we get to the heavenly city, when we get to the real city of peace, when we get to the real Jerusalem, There'll be no temple. There'll need not be a temple. Jesus Christ himself will be there. John said the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. There won't be a first electric co-op. There won't be an entergy. We're going to be able to go in and out of rooms and not reach and try to flip the switch. There's going to be no darkness. The light and the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ is going to illuminate the city. Verse 24, he said, by its light will the nations walk. Not just Israel, the nations. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The glory of all the kings of this earth is not even a candlelight compared to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. But get this, get this. In verse 25, he says, and its gates, the gates of the new Jerusalem, will never be shut by day. Never be shut by day. And get this. And there will be no night there. It will always be day. The gates will never be shut. And among all the other things that we could preach about there, I want you to understand this. That we'll have absolute, total, complete freedom to move about in the presence of Almighty God with no barrier whatsoever by the blood of the Lamb, Lord Jesus Christ, who substituted and sacrificed Himself in our place. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations for our resurrected Jesus. Well, brothers and sisters, we are on a different spot on the timeline regarding the kingdom of God where these folks were in Nehemiah chapter 3. The Messiah, the Christ that Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah had longed for, he has come to this earth the first time and he saved his people at the cross. Today, our duty is not to build rock walls. Our duty, as commanded by the living God, is to preach Christ and Him crucified. Our duty is to preach Christ and Him crucified. Our duty is to preach Christ and Him crucified, to baptize those that believe, and to disciple them. It's not complex, but it's not easy. We preach Christ crucified. We baptize believers. We disciple them. And we celebrate the Lord's table until He returns. It is our duty, beloved, every one of ours, no exception. It is our duty to use the life that God has given us, our health as long as it lasts, the talents, the skills, and the gift that God has blessed us with, our money, our children, our homes, our businesses, and every other blessing that God has given us for the glory of our God who purchased us with His own blood. 
May our Lord Jesus give us grace to prioritize His glory above our comfort. May God the Father give us grace to toil alongside one another in gospel labor, in unity, and without complaining. May the Spirit of God protect us from murmuring about hardships of serving Christ. May we serve our risen Lord Jesus with joy while being mocked and reviled, ridiculed, and scorned. May we be found preaching Christ crucified with the confidence of God, even while being exposed and vulnerable, at risk, and threatened. May the Spirit of God revive our hearts and souls. May the Spirit of God revive my heart and my soul, and your heart and your soul, and use us in the restoration of true and spiritual worship in our generation. That is the task, that is the assignment that God has given us in this generation, and we only get one life to do it in. Let us spend that life for the glory of God and the good of His people. Let us spend that life for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and the good of His people. May God give us grace to do that. Amen. Our Father, we come before You now thanking You for the hardship that the men and women that we read about in Nehemiah chapter 3 bore for the glory of God. Father, thank You that You had worked in their life much affliction, much pain, much separation, much suffering, and that You had used it along with the power of Your Spirit using Your Word to create a deep and genuine repentance in their heart to cause them to desire deeply, Father, that the glory of God might shine forth from the temple at the city of Jerusalem. And Father, that they thanked You for every splinter, every cut, every mashed finger, Father, that they were counted worthy by You of expending labor that You would use for the glory of God. Father, let that lesson not be lost upon us as we begin now the process of closing a chapter of some of our lives that has gone on for ten years here in Little Rock. Father, as we get ready very soon, don't know when, but very, very soon to load the little bit that we have on a truck and haul it across the county line and set it down somewhere else and labor for the glory of God. Father, I pray that you would be busy already working in the hearts and the minds of people in those communities that we're going to go to to bring them to us that they might come alongside us and labor together with us for the glory of God. Father, we pray that you would be at work now sovereignly working in the lives of people that we've never met before, people that may not even be from here, and bringing them to join us for the glory of God. Father, forbid that we should ever take any of your glory under ourselves. Father, we are weak vessels. We can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ. Father, cause us to dwell in our Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you that you condescended in humility. You were made flesh in order that you might bleed and die in our place on the cross and give us your righteousness in order that we might be joined to you. Lord Jesus, thank you for serving us that way. Thank you for making us as righteous as you are righteous, Lord Jesus, for declaring us to be as righteous as you are righteous. Father, give us a deep desire to see lost men and women to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. 
And give us an insatiable desire, Father, to see our Lord Jesus Christ high and lifted up and glorified on this earth as he is in heaven. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.